So basically what we're trying to do is model your foot after the best athletes, after the least injury prone athletes. If you look at if you look at all the 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 players in the NFL that have had very healthy careers, move really well, they're the the, the best of the best. You, same thing in the NBA, NBA. You look at LeBron James, you look at at him and having this incredibly long career, granted he's a physical freak, but you look at his feet and his feet look identical to Kevin Durant's, look identical to Steph Curry's, look identical to you name it, all of the elite of the elite athletes, they all have the same physical marks on their feet. And so went in and reverse engineered that. And so basically what we're trying to do is um, is do the, the short foot training, train the, the bottom of your foot and train your tibialis anterior um, to, to hey, kind I'm of Brett put your Gornick. foot in I'm a Jason position. Lobig. And what this Welcome does- Welcome to the Live Better podcast. Best day ever. We are coaches, trainers, retreat leaders, and wellness advisors, but didn't start our careers doing this. Jason worked in public accounting, and I worked in corporate retail until starting our dream business in which we help people from all different industries pursue their best day ever every single day. The goal of this podcast is to interview both each other and other professionals making an impact on the world on how wellness is the fuel to do whatever it is in life you want to do better. This podcast is about teaching people to actively pursue their purpose and how to use self-care to do it. We're here to show you how the best day of our mindset is available to anyone at any time, no matter your circumstance. It's your choice, and we're here to encourage you. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and even YouTube. You can also listen to our podcast on www.livebetterco.org. Have the best day ever. Live Better Squad, we are here. Dr. Michael Rischer is here to give us some insight into what it is that he does, how he helps fix people, not only fix, but helps them perform. A little backstory here. So I met uh, Dr. Michael through another person that's actually been on our podcast, uh, Ray, um, and she recommended him to me. We were talking about just, you know, get work done on the body and always continuing to improve. And, um, so I found you through her. I went and saw you maybe a, over a month ago now, uh, and yes, just had an awesome session, um, learning a lot about the body, learning a lot about things that have become dormant, things that have been turned off, turning them back on, understanding how to keep them on, understanding about alignment it was awesome. It was one of the most comprehensive screens I've ever had of myself. Uh, and so thanks for that. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. It's, uh, it's, I've been waiting for this. Um, glad the schedules finally worked out where you could get this set up. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think just to kind of let the listeners know about what it is that you do, I know that you studied a lot of different things. And Again, when I came in for my assessment, we ran through things like chiropractic, physical therapy, alignment, activation. Can you sum up what it is that you do? Yeah, so it's a lot of different things. And I uh, I was actually talking to a physical therapist yesterday about this. And basically, when you think of a chiropractor, you think of adjustments. When you think of a physical therapist, you think of injury rehab. When you think of a personal trainer, you think of how can I get my performance better? And if you, if you take, or at least my goal is if you take the pieces of, of each of those and put them into, into one person, that's, that's what my goal is to be as a practitioner. Um, because I have a background as a sports performance trainer. That's what I did before chiropractic school. Um, I do all the adjustments, but those aren't the only thing. And then I also treat pain. So, um, it's really, if you can take, and I don't want to, I don't want to sound arrogant or anything with this, but my goal is to be the personal trainer, chiropractor, uh, physical therapist combination and, and um, that whole piece in, in one visit. Yeah, what I think is interesting too is that when most people, to your point, think about physical therapy, um, it's always reactive. It's always on the back end of surgery or an injury. And I think something that Brett and I have had to, to, to really try and work and change, at least in like the minds of our clients, is that a good movement practitioner – and somebody who can work on the body and understands that full movement spectrum should be used as a preventative measure. And Brett and I, every time we try 
some type of new physical feat for Brett. It's now dunking. Last year for us, it was the marathon. For me, um, I had a bad hamstring injury, which we can talk about, but I'm sort of trying to get back to um, what is a little bit more like explosive running and also adding in some jumping in there um, just kind of for fun, doing a little bit more power work. Every time we try something new, we always go see a PT that sort of understands all of these elements on purpose because I think it gives frame and context to like the work, the body work in between, how to work on maintenance and gives people check-ins. So like it's very much on our mission to build a team of health practitioners for people, specifically for our clients that can solve many different needs, hopefully most of which we get solved before they actually kind of happen or turn into something that's worse. No, absolutely. And the the reactive um, care is kind of what draws people in initially. And, and I mean, you you need that definitely because things things happen, crap happens and um, you, you injure yourself in training or whatever. But what a lot of people don't understand is there's a, a, a general physical preparedness level that you need to have just for life and for whatever you're, you're training for, whether it's the marathon or dunking. You, you can't just go out and start training like this immediately without ramping yourself up and getting your GPP to that level where you're ready to go. And part of that is seeing a, a Cairo massage uh, PT to make sure that your movement patterns are adequate, that you're not lacking um, any, any functional strength. So, I mean, that's, that's huge preventative or um, even if you're, if you want to call it a, a performance um, treatment is a huge part of training and making sure that you, you live healthy and you stay healthy. So one of the things that when we, when I came in to see you, which I, which I thought was great. And, you know, I've seen all sorts of practitioners. I, I walked in, you know, we shook hands and you did a full body analysis, regardless of what, what, what my questions were. And we started from the ground up. We went through a couple of patterns. Can you walk us through, you know, when you see somebody um, and this could be, uh, let's go with the first time. So this is somebody's first time in, and I don't care if it's, a yoga instructor, somebody that just had an accident squatting or Khalil Mack. Um, what do you look for when you look at somebody for the first time? Yeah. So I, I want to see how they move. And so it, it varies based on the person just slightly, but I want to see how they move when they're doing what they're doing. So um, a lot of my patients, uh, I'm a CrossFit coach as well. A lot of my patients might come from the CrossFit gym. And so, uh, so I've seen how they move already. And so we can skip certain steps. Um, if someone comes in that I've never seen move before, as soon as I lay eyes on them, I'm looking to see how they walk. Uh, I'm seeing, do they have any compensation? Do they have any leaning, uh, any antalgic gait? And, and I'm, I'm really just, from the moment I lay eyes on them, I'm looking at posture, gait, and, and just how they move in general. If I have um, one of my NFL guys, I'll go watch film on them playing and see what type of mover they are before I even get hands on them. So I want to have a, a picture of how this person moves, how this person um, uses their body. And so if someone's coming in with pain, a lot of the movement screen comes from when they walk in. Um, but then I have to go kind of specifically to that one area. If someone has crippling low back pain, I'm not going to ask them to do squats and, and all that. Um, so you kind of take them through general range of motion, um, whether it's low back or shoulder or leg. And you see, you see how they move in that range of motion. Is it, is it painful? Is it clunky? Is it limited? Um, and then from there, you go a little bit more hands-on. You see how does their body respond? What's their muscle test like? Is, the, is their muscle reacting properly and how you would expect it to react? Or is it not reacting at all? Do they have a difficulty even contracting the muscle? So you're, you're gaining just kind of through the evaluation, you're gaining a, a picture of, what what do they move like? How do their muscles function? Are there joints that are restricted? Are there muscle tissues that are damaged? Um, and then you try and classify each person into a category. Do they have more of a joint issue? Do they have more of a muscle issue? Is it a postural issue? Or are they really coming in for performance? So when, when you came in, um, if you don't mind me sharing, is, is that all oh, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, when, when you came in, you didn't necessarily have any injury that you were specifically like, Hey, this is what's killing me. I need this fixed today, which a lot of people come in with. It was, Hey, I have this goal. I have these things that limit me. And so then we, we dive deeper into, um, what your movement patterns, what your strengths and weaknesses are 
um, and and really def- devise a plan to help you get to that goal. So um, you have to you have to kind of put people in different buckets, and then once you've done that movement screening, once you've done the range of motion screening, once you've done the muscle testing, um, that's where you start to get into the treatment. Can you walk us through the difference between a joint and a muscle issue? Uh, I think it's hard for people to self-diagnose that. And it's also sometimes people don't even know that there's a difference. Um, what, what, is the, what is the difference there? Um, and uh, talk about how you assess that and then how you ultimately fix that. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you're going to have uh they're, they're both going to be involved in every single treatment, right? You're not going to have a muscle issue that does not affect a joint. You're not going to have a joint issue that does not affect a muscle. So, I mean, you, you have to have both, but it's really what is the primary driver of the pain? What is the primary driver of the, the dysfunction? And so um, we classify them as, uh, just to use McKenzie um, terms, you, you classify them as a derangement or a dysfunction. And the derangement you'll find is painful um, kind of sporadically. Uh, joints are a little bit more finicky in that, uh, in that it's not necessarily a specific movement all the time that bothers it, but you will have a specific movement that makes it feel better. Um, so if, uh, just taking a shoulder, for example, because, I mean, you can't see me right now, but I'm moving my shoulder around to help me demonstrate. I'm a, I'm a hands talker. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And, and so, I mean, if I have a, if I have a shoulder joint injury, I'm going to have a lot of different ranges of motion that bother it, but I'm going to have a definite, um, directional preference that makes it feel better. So, um, so that's kind of the, the differentiator for muscle versus, um, joint is joints going to have a lot of different ranges of motion. It's going to be really finicky muscles have very specific actions. And so if you have a muscle injury, it's going to hurt to do that specific movement. If I have a bicep injury, right, it's going to hurt doing shoulder flexion or um, elbow flexion, right? It's going to feel better. I'm going to feel a stretch with shoulder extension or elbow extension. You're not necessarily going to have the same uh, the, the same sort of pain if you're doing um, sort of an, an AB or an adduction of your shoulder. So when you have a joint issue, it's a lot more finicky. It's a lot less specific of the pain, but you have a specific relief. When you have a muscle injury, it's a lot more specific movement will bother it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's an interesting thing to understand, obviously, that they both connect. And a lot of people get an injury like, and they'll go get diagnosed with, oh, you tore your rotator cuff or um, you have some sort of joint dysfunction. Um, and a lot of people don't register that they're, that it, it definitely is something that impacts like not only that area, but the entire area of your body. Uh, and one of the things that, um, but that leads to in, in a question I have is the diff, the understanding of compensation. And this has been something that I've been thinking about a lot. So again, to go back to my jump training journey, a lot of what I've been focused on is just like balancing out my training. So making sure I'm not just jumping off one foot but I'm doing off two feet off my right foot and my left foot reaching with opposite hands to make sure that I'm not only staying balanced in my jump in my training, but also seeing like, where are my weaknesses? Um, and one of the things that I think is, and, and I'd like to get your opinion on this is, you know, as human beings, we will compensate because we've had injury. Uh, we have a dominant side, um, all sorts of different factors. Like, you know, you might have a longer leg on one side or whatever, even if it's at a minuscule level. So what is your thought on overall compensation? Like, is some okay? Are you always trying to find like perfect balance between like, I can single leg press on my left 200 pounds, but on my right, I can only do 195. Like, is that a big enough difference? And I think there's a scale, obviously, to like, if your goal is to just be able to walk down the street versus like, you know, tackle a running back. But talk us through compensation and kind of balance and how important that is for say like a general person that's just like a weekend warrior as well as an athlete. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question because there are a lot of people out there that train perfect posture or um, symmetrical movement. And that's just not attainable for 99% of people. And it, it doesn't have to be attainable, right? You can be within a certain range and have that be totally fine. 
For other people, you don't want them to be symmetrical. If I have a baseball pitcher, I don't I don't want them to be really good at using their non-dominant arm in the throwing motion. That matters zero to them. <laughs> yeah. it, it like all that matters is that throwing motion. And obviously you have to have we talked about a little earlier, the the general physical preparedness where you're not going to injure yourself because you have a, a glaring weakness. You have to have a certain amount there, but it really depends on the specific person. Um, let's take a, a CrossFit um, just as, as an example, because I use that or I see that daily. Um, that is a sport where you want to have a lot of symmetry, where it's a, a lot of singular plane uh, movement and you want to have a lot of symmetry. So if a CrossFitter comes in and I see that they have a, a weird rotation or a weird core pattern, my goal with them is to be a lot more is to get them to be a lot more symmetrical because they need that. If they're twisting every time they, they're doing an overhead squat, that's definitely dangerous for their their spine and for their shoulder health. So we have to make sure that they're more symmetrical. If you're jumping, if you're playing basketball, you're going to have a more dominant side. So we're going to see a little bit less symmetry because you have to use one side a little bit more than the other. You uh, Again, you want to have um, as much symmetry as possible, but you're going to have an unavoidable um, unavoidable dominant side. You're going to have an unavoidable um, dominant leg that you you just prefer to jump off of. So, um, so it is important to an extent, but you also have to understand what your goal is. Like you said, if your goal is to just walk down the street or go for a jog, the, the symmetry has to be close enough that you're not going to injure yourself, but it, it, it really doesn't matter if you're, if you can bench 95 on one arm and only 90 on the other arm, right? That, that, that level of disparity isn't huge. Um, when you get into to, to bigger jumps and we'll talk percentages a little bit more, when you get into like five to, to 10% range, like that, that and above, that's where I start to say, okay, what's going on? Um, is this a developmental thing? Is this something that, oh, you just played baseball your whole life and your, your one side is stronger? Or do you have, um, do you have an injury or a motor pattern that we can reverse and strengthen your other side just because we're making you more symmetrical? So, um, for, for your more elite athletes, I'm less concerned about symmetry because they have that dominant side for a lot of sports, um, especially the throwing sports. For um, your general person, I try to get a little bit more symmetry because I know that they're using uh, side to side um, just about equally. So, I mean, we, we can dive in more specifically if you want to talk specific sports um, and, and specific injuries or, or, or people if you want. Yeah, Michael, I just have a quick, quick question. So um, it's kind of a two-part question. I have heard of, and I actually have two clients right now, one that's kind of almost finished and one that's in a boot um, I have heard that, and, and I've seen some people talk about it. I think I saw, um, Joe DeFranco talk about it recently cause he just had his shoulder replaced, I think. Um, but about training the training on a single arm side when the other side is injured about that injured arm that might be in like a sling or brace still being able to hang on to some muscle mass. And I can't remember what the like study that got cited was or what the phenomenon or reason for that was. It was just kind of interesting to, to think about that when you do think about a single side athlete who like a, a baseball player or a pitcher, like what would happen to their performance if they did more regularly throw a ball lefty, swing a golf club lefty? Because I think like for me personally, just like to bring myself into it, I had a really bad hamstring injury on my left hip. I had a full avulsion. Everything came off. Yeah, it sucked. And, uh, and even to this day, like two years later, I've been focusing on single leg training for quite some time now, um, especially this year, getting back more into strength training. And I just had a DEXA scan recently done. And there were last year, there was a two pound difference in my right leg over my injured left. And this year I've gotten that to decrease slightly, but like, do you ever see muscle imbalances like that? Um, like create kind of a cause for concern. So kind of like a two part question, like, do you think a pitcher's um, like kind of rotational imbalance or asymmetry would be benefited by them just like kind of messing around and throwing lefty here and there golfer kind of the same way. And then does, does a muscle balance like that ever give you cause for concern? And I'm kind of like 
would put myself in a hybrid group between like the walk around person and I care just as much about my body as like many of the athletes I know. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, no, the fact that you're you're getting DEXA scans and and you're noticing that is um, much more high level than a lot of people uh, even realize. So uh, kudos to you on that, um, first of all. But yeah, the, that's that's actually fun. Um, it's a fun part of rehab that you can train one side and still get crossover. Uh, I forget off the top of my head. Forgive me um, for for not remembering it specifically. But but I've done I've done training. Um, I've had people torn labrum in their their shoulder, and we train only the opposite side and. Um, and there is good research saying that they maintain some muscle mass, they maintain some strength um, through through training only one side of their body. Um, so, uh, as far let's let I mean diving into the the one sided athlete, I think this is a, a big training issue that people uh, will be fairly divided on. I'm more of uh, in the group that if you are doing a specific sport, you want to be the best at that specific thing possible. If you're a power lifter, I don't care. I don't care if you can swing the, the, the baseball bat righty or lefty. I care if you're really good at benching. I care if you're really good at squatting and really good at deadlifting. If you're, if you're a righty pitcher, I only care how good you are throwing with your left hand. You may learn a little bit. You may, may, may gain a little bit of, um, body awareness by throwing with your left hand from time to time. But I think the um, what you're really looking at is the cost cost uh, benefit, right? Is is the time cost of training the opposite hand? Is that going to benefit you more than practicing with your dominant hand? Are you going to get more out of um, throwing lefty than you would a throwing session righty? And I, for most people, I think the answer is no. I think training that dominant side and getting the better reps. Um, on that dominant side is going to be significantly better for you um, in your sport. Now, if you're if you're someone like a, like I, I went to Top Golf the other day and I tried using a lefty club and it was a really good um, mind body exercise and I, I gained a lot out of it and I feel like I had a better feel for my body. That being said, I don't need to go compete in golf, so it doesn't matter for me. It might, it might be better for me to go out and try these things lefty so that I'm more body aware. So I'm not so dominant on one side, but if I'm, if I'm competing in a sport, I want to be the best at that one side, um, as I possibly can be. So, um, so that's kind of my, my, my short answer there is for your, your general, uh, your general person. Yeah. Messing around, trying that other side is probably pretty beneficial for learning how your body works, but for your elite athletes, I think being more specific in your practice is, is better. Um, what was the second half of the question? I, I totally forgot after, after that one. <laughs> Do any of the muscle imbalances, like when they start to get extreme or what is the sort of like deviation where you start to be like, Hey, you know, your, your left bicep is Rafael Nadal size and your right bicep is like high school cross country runner. <laughs> right. No, no, totally. There's, um, and I think, I, I think you're, no you're kind of on a high school cross country. Um, I think you're kind of on a scale there, right? You have to, you have to decide, um, you, you have to make that decision because if you, if you've gotten to that point, if it's always kind of been like that, like you have the one side that's, that's always been stronger. You're coming from a, a, a right side dominant sport. Like, like my, my right pec is not significantly anymore cause it's been a while, but definitely bigger and stronger than my left pec because I've, I'm a right hand dominant athlete. I played um, I, I played football and baseball in high school. And so I'm, my, my right side was just always a little bit more developed. If I walked into a, a physical and the doc saw my right side versus my left side, both look healthy and there's no real cause for concern. Maybe there's a slight discrepancy in the strength, but nothing, nothing crazy. Um, now I have seen people where there is significant atrophy on one side of the body. And that is definitely cause for concern. At that point, you're looking at, okay, what is, what is the nervous system look like? Is there a lack of nervous system function to that side? And so it's definitely concerning. Um, but it's a lot more rare. Like if you, if you have the, the right bicep looking like Rafael Nadal and the left bicep looking like a, a cross country runner at that point, I'm thinking there's something neurologically that's compromised. Um, and, and that's kind of the extreme end of things. Now, um, I have I have seen people that have they they describe differences in their uh, leg strength, and that's that's um, definitely noticeable. 
the only time it really uh, concerns me is when it affects your biomechanics, when it affects how you're moving. If you're doing a squat and you are constantly leaning on your right side because your left leg does not feel like it can support you as well, that's where I start to to get like, okay, we should probably a back off your your weight for your squat so you don't overload um, any one side of your body, and b let's see why your left leg isn't functioning. Um, same thing, same thing with, uh, with, with anything overhead. It's, it's just really easy to notice these things overhead. If you have a, if you have, uh, every time you lift a a barbell overhead, if you notice that that right arm goes up very easy, easily, but that left arm doesn't fully lock out or, or doesn't, um, press up as easily. That's where I'm saying, okay, let's look at why, that shoulder is not working properly. Do you, did you have an injury somewhere up and down the, the fascial chain? And, and that's probably the most interesting to me is, is do you have something that was not necessarily affecting, uh, uh, injured in your shoulder, but injured somewhere else that's affecting your mechanics? Or is it just something that, that we need to strengthen that one side and, and you just haven't done that? So it's, it's more of like a, a magnitude and where you fall on that magnitude scale kind of determines the severity and how, how important I treat that, um, to the person. If it, if it's super minor and you can barely tell, then I might not address it at all. It might be like a, Hey, once we're done, let's do, let's, let's just see if we can, we can address this a little bit. But if it's, if it's significant, if it's affecting your squat and you say, Hey, there's a definite noticeable difference in this side versus this side, then, then that's where that's going to be the main part of the treatment is figuring out why that one part of your body, that one side of your body is not operating, um, to the same degree as, as the other side. So it, it's definitely a cause for concern, but, but you have to use your skills as a practitioner to put that on the scale, right? So that's, that's kind of, it, it varies by person significantly, but you definitely have to decide the, the level of importance, um, and the level of relevance to the person when you're deciding, is this going to be something that I need to put a ton of effort into, or can we kind of put this on the back burner and, and address it later? Yeah, that, that's a, that, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things you just mentioned, um, which I think would be a, an interesting thing to dive into for a second is understanding that fascial chain. Um, again, going back to our session, um, I had kind of brought you through a couple of the injuries that I had. And you did some, some muscle testing. So, um, we were doing, you were doing one where I was, I was face down, you're checking my hamstring. Um, and initially you put some weight into my, so I essentially was laying on my, on my belly and had my right leg bent, um, as if you were going to do a a hamstring machine and you were pushing down on it. And initially you just can like easily push it down. Then you did some activation work and then you were able to literally like post your whole body against my leg. Can you explain one, that technique, and then two, how the fascial chain can impact things? For example, I broke my right ankle when I was young, uh, and then we, we kind of like went through all my injuries, and it was crazy. It was like right ankle, right hamstring, right hip, left shoulder, and how that like kind of X works itself out. Um, if you could kind of talk about the, the activation and how that and what that really is, because in all full transparency, that's something I don't fully understand yet. Um, is how you were able to like poke and prod in some areas. And then it was like, I went from not being able to hold it to you could have put 400 pounds on my leg. And then the impact of that chain for just like a normal person. And then once you answer this, I have a kind of like a follow up around um, diving into consistency and understanding how often people should be getting looked at that just for like general wellness. Yeah, totally. Um, this is, this is one of my favorite things to, to do in clinic. Um, I have a, I mean, this is the, the muscle testing is something that I do with everybody. Um, doesn't matter if you're a a grandma or if you're going to, to suit up and play in an NFL game on Sunday, the muscle tests are really telling and really help you, um, be more specific with your treatment. And so I love doing it. Um, the thing that, that is difficult to, um, describe. And I try my best to do it is I'm testing. I'm not testing muscle strength, right? I'm not going to do anything that's going to change, um, how strong you are. Like if I had, if I had asked you to leg press max weight, whatever, and then we did something. And then I asked you to leg press max weight again, that's not going to change. 
what's what's going to change is the reactivity. And um, basically, the idea is um, what I'm doing is I'm ramping up the pressure really quickly. And so if I ramp up the pressure really quickly, how fast does your muscle respond to that new stimulus? If it responds really well, you're expecting the the person to be able to meet the resistance, to be able to lock up because I'm not putting, it's my tricep versus your hamstring and your hamstring should win 10 times out of 10 if I'm ramping the pressure up and, and your hamstring's working properly. If there's some interference and I ramp the pressure up quickly and your hamstring just cannot contract and it's not um, working as a cohesive unit quickly, that's where that's where I say, okay, we have we have uh, an issue going on there. Um, there are a lot of different things that could it could be. Uh, it, it could be a, a nerve, it could be a, a joint, it could be um, old scar tissue. I mean, the, the the list goes on and on and on. Um, and that's where you have to have the clinical expertise to, to kind of tease that out and figure out what's going on. But the idea is if there is something that your brain is focused on, um, uh, subliminally, if they're subconsciously rather, if there's something that your brain is focused on that is not contracting the muscle, then your body's not going to respond as quickly. Like if I'm, if I'm asking you to do the ABCs backwards and then I say, all right, bench press max weight while you're counting the ABCs backwards, you're not going to be able to bench press max weight because you're thinking about counting the ABCs backwards. It's the same idea, just at a, a different scale um, on when I'm doing the muscle tests. So so that's kind of what it's telling me is, is there anything that's distracting your body in, in kind of layman's terms? Is there anything that's distracting your body from responding as quickly as it should? Um, and then from there, you you go into all the different diagnosis and what's actually going on. Um, and for a lot of people, what happens is it's not necessarily your hamstring that's injured. You didn't come in with a hamstring strain. You came in with just a motor pattern, pattern issue that was affecting you, um, in that kind of cross pattern, the, the, uh, posterior oblique sling. And so for you specifically, you had all these injuries that kind of went along this oblique sling and really led, led themselves to a motor pattern that your body, um, just wasn't sure how to operate. It wasn't operating optimally. So you go back and you look at you look at each things up and down that fascial chain, and that's where you discover what the issues are. Um, we kind of need to dive into what fascia is. I've been I've been talking about this a little bit, and I think this is going to help answer the question. Um, so a, a fascia is is something that covers every single uh, tissue in your body. And so if you took away all of your muscle, all of your bones, all of your organs, and you only left the fascia, you would see a perfect outline of your body. You would see all of, all of your body outlined. And so fascia is intricately connected throughout your entire body where your where one muscle ends and, and another starts, the fascia continues. So your, your fascia from the bottom of your foot is connected all the way up to the top of your head. And there's no break in that. So when you, when you have an injury uh, at, at one part of that fascial chain, it affects the entire thing up and down. So when we say your right shoulder is connected to your left hips, connected to your left hamstring and, and left ankle, um, then we say, all right, you had, a, you had a disruption, you had an injury to your right shoulder. Now we have to look at that entire oblique sling, that rotation movement and see, is there anything, is there any disruption along this fascial chain? Is the fascia irritated? Um, or, or disorganized in any way? And can we reorganize that? Can we retrain you to work uh, better in that movement? And so if we affect, if you have, if you have some damage in your, your shoulder, and that's putting extra tension on the, the fascial chain, then then you're not going to operate optimally. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we did is we backtracked, we said, all right, let's go up and down. Let's not just focus on an area of pain, because there wasn't really any Let's look up and down the entire movement pattern because we know that it's all connected through fascia and let's see which parts your body still recognizes as problem areas, which parts your body uh, needs to have worked out so that you can work optimally. And so I think that's, um, that's a big piece of what I do that a lot of people don't, don't do and I don't understand why because it, it helps you diagnose, it helps you treat so much more accurately, so much more quickly. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the big overview. That's, I mean, that's a, a long time of studying condensed into like five minutes. So, um, if, if you have any more questions or anyone has questions on that, let me know and I can explain a lot more, but, um, but that's, that's the, the, 
general overview of muscle testing and why the fascial chains are important. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that answered everything. I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, it's an important thing for people to understand too, that if you had an ankle injury when you were 12 and it was never treated, like it's going to affect your entire body. And not only that, things need continuous treatment. So again, I'll just keep going back to when I saw you. I shattered my collarbone a couple of years ago and I had a really good team work on it and, and fix it. I mean, I'm fully overhead, can do handstands perfectly fine, never notice it. But even when I saw you, you did just some work around the scar because, you know, there's going to continue to be tissue. And we were looking at kind of the pattern in which the tissue moved and it moved really nice going from the middle of my chest outward, but really shitty going back into the middle. Mm-hmm. And so you did a little bit of work to release that area. And I've been doing a bunch of that since we met too. Just been like scraping it once a week. Um, and I think that's just an important thing. And so question would be, how often should somebody be anybody? Like we talked in the beginning, this is like prehab. Um, should be seeing somebody like yourself. Um, and with that, um, how often should you go back if you had had an injury like my shoulder or Jason's hamstring? Um, how often should you be getting that assessed and worked on outside of just your you know normal foam rolling or stretching or activations? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I have a ton of people ask me that. Um, it's it's one of the, the the most common questions I get. And what I would say is, if you're training and you don't have any injuries. I really like once a month or once every other month for a a comprehensive treatment. Now, if you have a chiropractor that you like, you've been going to for a long time that only does adjustments. Great. I have no, I have no problem with that, but you also should see some sort of PT, some sort of massage therapist that's going to take care of the soft tissue, right? You want the joints and the soft tissue both taken care of. So I I have no, I have no preference uh, necessarily. Obviously I'd love if you you came and saw me, right? Because I know I'm going to do both and I know what I'm doing, but but I like once a month, once every other month, if you're, if you're exercising, if you're training, if you have goals, um, because that, that really makes sure that you're staying ahead of everything. Um, when I was playing football in college, I would, even if I wasn't injured, although I was banged up often, I would go see my chiropractor once a month. Um, he's my mentor and he does all the same stuff that I do. Um, and and I would go see him once a month while I was playing football. I, I, have people that uh, that play sports recreationally or, or do CrossFit or uh, marathon runners, and they'll they'll just stay on the books once once a month, once every other month to make sure that they're staying on top of everything that their training is uh, optimal. So that's that's kind of your your maintenance or performance type person. And obviously, you can ramp it up from there if you want to go. If you say, "Hey, I have this this goal. I want to run a, a marathon, and I got to do it by this date," or you say, "Hey, I want to." Um, using you as an example, if I want to dunk and I have this deadline, then maybe more often is is uh, better for you because you have a specific deadline that you want to accomplish this this thing by. So, um, so it it varies by person, but generally, I would say month to two months um, is probably good for your maintenance person. And then, as far as the the injured person, anyone that's coming in with an injury. That one's very, very specific to who they are and what type of injury they have. Um, certain soft tissue injuries do a lot better when you treat them um, multiple days in a row or multiple days in a week. And so if someone came in with an acute hamstring strain, and, and I've had some people with that, I'd, I'd treat them three days in a row, you know, and we're doing the rehab, we're doing the uh, soft tissue, we're doing uh, we're doing the adjustments and, and the mobility stuff. But if you have an acute injury, that's going to be more frequent. So typically I go, uh, the most common I would say is like once a week for three weeks, and then you kind of reevaluate from there. But if it's really severe, if someone, if someone can't walk, if they have radiating low back pain, maybe I'll see them two times a week or three times a week while we get it under control. Because if they, if they can't walk, if they can't actually go about their daily life, that's where you need to ramp up the treatment. So, um, Again, it's a big scale and every time that's part of why having a good practitioner is really important and having someone that understands you and understands your goals is really important because there's a lot of people that you would go into and it's like, yeah, let's see you uh, once a week for seven months. 
and you're like, okay, well, why? Why do I, why have to, why do I have to be seen once a week for seven months? You don't, you, you don't know how my issue is going to progress and, and you're not going to be able to reevaluate, but I have to sign up for seven months versus coming in and saying, Hey, we're going to, I know that this is the typical progression of your injury. We're going to treat for three weeks and then reevaluate and then continue with the, uh, the care plan. So it's, it's usually I go a three to four week care plan and then the number of treatments visit. And then at the end of that three or four weeks, you reevaluate, you see where they've progressed to, and then you see, okay, can we taper off this treatment? Because at the end of the day, I don't want to see you in my office, right? If I see you in my office every week, that means that you're injured. If, if I see you in my office every week for months on end, that means that I'm not doing my job right. I'm not getting you back to optimal health. I want you to be able to accomplish things on your own. I want to get you in and out of my office and then have you come in as the preventative care, not every week, right? Once a month, once every other month, because that's where I want you to get, not not where I'm treating you every week indefinitely. So um, again, it's yeah, it's a, it's a scale, but that's the those are those are kind of the, the couple buckets that I put people in. Yeah, that's great. I think to piggyback off that, you know, once somebody's coming in once a month, and some of the drills that we did. I want to talk about details about those drills and then also what sh- people should be doing um, on a daily or weekly basis to prevent injury. And I want to get your opinion on that. So two drills that we did that I loved um, were, and I, I'm going to butcher the second name, but the first one was ankle locking. And I want mm-hmm. you to talk through that. And the second one was the one where I was lying on my back. You were putting pressure into the inner thigh. And then I was rotating with the weight to kind of turn on the, the oblique chain. Uh, I've been doing both of those. Uh, the second, the latter, before I jump, well, both before I jump and lift legs specifically to activate that, that cross chain. Uh, can you talk us through both of those drills? And then maybe just some other stuff that you recommend for maintenance, whether you're a fan of... Um, mobility in regards to FRC or foam rolling or trigger point or vibration technology or cryotherapy or Normatech boots, like, you know, kind of what, what should people be doing outside of those couple movements that we went through? Yeah. And, and I want to go, uh, we'll talk cause I'm, I'm going to go, uh, it's the ground up stuff, the ankle locking and the, um, I had an 11 year old patient named that one, the crunch punch. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I like so that. That, that. That one's called the crunch punch, um, and uh, but but as far as different things that I like doing, um, again, it depends on what you what you want to get out and how much you want to spend. I actually had this conversation with someone yesterday. Um, it, it depends. It depends what your budget is and what your priorities are and what you're training for. I love the Normatec boots. Um, those things are wicked expensive. And so if you have access to them, love using them. Maybe there are, maybe there's a, a recovery room in the area. I know um, some places just have recovery rooms where you can have a, a subscription there and you can go use them as often as you want. That way you don't have to pay the 1200 bucks for the Normatec boots. You can pay 20 bucks a month and then just use that a, a, as much as you want. Um, so I love that. I love the massage guns. Um, my favorite is the one I use. It's called the Mayo Buddy. Um, but the hypervolt and the, uh, I don't even, there's so many different ones out there that, um, that I can't even keep track anymore, but I, I like those. Those are a cheaper option where you can have some sort of, um, vibration therapy and percussion therapy, which is really important. Um, then there's the, uh, cryotherapy is cryotherapy is good. Um, it feels great. I don't know the long-term benefits. Uh, it's really great for your skin. Um, is probably the best benefit. So I don't, I don't necessarily recommend that all the time, although it feels awesome and your body feels really great after. Um, so it's, it's great more for me for mentally, um, than physically, but it, it, it makes your body feel really good. Um, the, the longer term benefits are just kind of up in the air with the research. Uh, I think the one that I like the, the best is the float tank and, um, I don't know if you guys have ever done the sensory deprivation tanks. Is that, have you done those before? Very much so. Oh, big, big fan of those. Huge, huge fan. I mean, the Epsom salts and the magnesium in there is really great for your muscles. It's, it's great recovery, but I love that it, it, the, the sensory deprivation tank shuts everything out and you're just left with your thoughts. And that's, it's 
not only relaxing for you physically, but it's relaxing for you mentally. Um, and that's a, that's a huge, huge thing. I love going, doing that myself. And if I could, if I could say, Hey, add this one thing in to your, your recovery on top of seeing me, it'd be go, go do a sensory deprivation tank, because I think that's, uh, that's a huge one. I, I recommend that to people all the time. Um, so, so that's, that's probably the biggest one. Um, you mentioned FRC, all the different um, stretching and, and range of motion techniques. There, there are a bunch of different ones that are great. Um, really, whatever kind of fits your lifestyle. You know, if you really enjoy FRC, if you really like intense focused movements around joints, that's great. If you prefer yoga or a Ramwad, go and do that as well. Because making sure that you move all of your joints almost every day, that's a huge part of staying healthy. And I think that's something that, that a lot of people miss is using your joints and using all of your joints regularly is very important. So not only just exercising, but taking them through the, the joint centration with FRC or going through a yoga class where you have different poses and you're, you're asked to, to hold them or, um, or, or go through different flows. Love that sort of stuff. So, um, uh, again, it really depends on the type of training that you're doing and your personality, um, and your budget. So, uh, I, th- I think if, if anyone has questions on those things specifically, like I would love to, I would love to point them in the right direction because there are so many options out there and there's so many different price points out there. Like, like you could go, you could go spend LeBron James spends a million dollars a year on his body, right? You could spend a million dollars a year doing this sort of stuff or your budget could be significantly less, which it is for literally everybody. Um, and then you got, you have to make some, some different decisions and you have to decide what's going to be best for you. So, um, I love all those things. If I had to pick two, um, just for, for sake of, um, for sake of people's time and, and, and money, I would pick float tanks and I would go do some sort of, uh, yoga FRC, um, ROM wide mobility wad type thing. Um, because I think the, the physical restoration and the mental restoration of both of those is, is huge. So, um, those are my recommend recommendations as far as taking care of yourself outside of, um, outside of like coming to see a, a practitioner. Um, did you have any other, any other specific things that you had questions on or should we get into the specific, um, yeah, let's exercises? just go to the two drills that we went over. Yeah. So the, my, my favorite one, this is kind of my, my baby is the uh, ankle lock. And it took me, so I, I saw this, um, there's one guy on the internet and I have to give him credit. His name's, uh, uh, coach Chong, coach Chong. And, uh, he's secret of athleticism on Instagram. And, uh, he started highlighting athletes feet and explaining fascial tension. And, um, while I was in school, I was too cheap to go buy his book. So I looked at what he was trying to do, what he was showing, and I reverse engineered the foot, like the perfect athlete's foot, um, if you will. And that was, that took me probably close to a year and I'm still, I'm still tweaking it and, and making it better in certain ways, but it took me probably about a year where to where I, I finally felt comfortable teaching and having my athletes do this exercise. And so basically what we're trying to do is model your foot after the best athletes, after the least injury prone athletes. If you look at if you look at all the, the the players in the NFL that have had very healthy careers, move really well, they're the the, the best of the best. If you, same thing in the NBA, NBA. You look at LeBron James. You look at at him and having this incredibly long career. Granted, he's a physical freak, but you look at his feet. And his feet look identical to Kevin Durant's, look identical to Steph Curry's, look identical to you name it. All of the elite of the elite athletes, they all have the same physical marks on their feet. And so went in and reverse engineered that. And so basically what we're trying to do is um, is do the, the short foot training, train the, the bottom of your foot and train your tibialis anterior um to, to kind of put your foot in a certain position and what this does. And, and this is the most exciting. I'm, I'm geeking out right now. This is, um, one of my favorite things on earth to talk about. And people are going to be a little freaked out by what, well, like, why is he so excited talking about LeBron James feet? Um, so apologize in advance for that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but basically what you're trying to do is put tension on the bottom of the foot. And just like we talked about your fascia is connected from the bottom of your foot to the top of your head. If you can create the right tension on the bottom of your foot, 
all of a sudden your calf, your hamstring, your glute, all are pre-tensioned every time your foot hits the ground. Now, now think about this playing basketball. If you're taking a shot and you have a bunch of different individual joints that are all firing differently, your shot's going to look wonky. You're, you're going to be incredibly inaccurate. If, you're, if you're, your foot, every time it touches the ground, has the same firing pattern of the fascia, all of a sudden that has your foot all the way up to your glute operating in one line and tensioning at the same time, you have much more powerful, much more repeatable movements. And so all of a sudden you're, you're incredibly uh, more accurate and incredibly uh, uh, more repeatable in your movements. And so that's, that's really what I love doing is can we train your feet can we do the right exercises to get the, the tension on the bottom of your foot to match that of LeBron James, of Steph Curry, of all these all these different NFL guys? Um, and, and so that's really what we're doing there is, is um, putting tension on the bottom of the foot. The way that helps the average everyday person is now if you're running, you have your foot all the way up to your glute firing every time you take a step. There's a lot less trauma going into your ankle, knee, and hip. There's a, a lot less, a lot lower chance for an energy leak um, that could cause injury. You, you talk about runner's knee and, and people having this this pain in their knee every time they run. If we can train this entire posterior chain, if we can train the, the fascia on the bottom of your foot all the way up to your glute, then you are less likely to have that force go just into your knee. It's now being absorbed by all three joints: all your your foot, your your foot and ankle, your knee and your hip. It's all being they're they're all kind of sharing the force. So. Um, it has its performance benefits and it also has its injury prevention benefits and absolutely geek out. It's really, really difficult to train. And so we have to do a lot of different regressions and progressions uh, until you get to the point where we, we have you doing what you want, uh, or what we want you to do. So it, it might take a little bit longer for some people. Some people might get it sooner, but it's, it's super important. It's probably the most important single thing that I, I do with people. Um, which is, which is, um, a lot of fun. I love, love doing that with people. Um, the crunch punch is kind of an, a, a, a different version of that. We, we talk about ground up training, training your feet up. We, we also have to talk about training your upper body and how it, uh, reacts with your core, how it interacts with your core. And so we have these patterns of rotation. You have, you think of core strength and you think of your, your six pack and, and you just train it with sit-ups, but what you miss is that oblique sling. And so every time you throw a ball, every time you rotate, you have from your shoulder, actually from your fingertips down through your hip, all is connected and all is firing in one pattern. Again, if there's an energy leak there, you're more likely to get injured. And so what we do with the crunch punch is we have you activate your shoulder and then activate your core and also activate your leg adductor. So you're rotating across your body, and you're doing it in a very controlled um, movement, focusing a lot on your rib cage and just your core crunching uh, in a rotational movement. So it's it's very specific. It's less than uh, it's it's more specific and, and more applicable than just like a Russian twist or any other sort of rotational pattern because we're actually activating the shoulder, making sure that the shoulder is in a packed position. The shoulder is activated as well as the core. So it's it's a full chain movement and it's a motor pattern movement, not just, um, not just a core movement. So you're, you're getting, you're getting so many different things out of, uh, that crunch punch movement. And, um, it's, I mean, that's, that's one of my favorites and that's one that's incredibly applicable, uh, to a lot of different athletes, regardless of your sport, that one can be applied and we, we tweak it slightly to based on your sport, but that one can be applied, um, across so many different people. I need to go through both of those, <laughs> specifically the ankle lock. I, yeah. you know, some of the, the, uh, laundry list of ailments we were discussing earlier. Um, I have had probably, I don't know, 10 plus high ankle sprains, a couple low, low ankle sprains, uh, on both feet. And then my like big toes both have arthritis and I've had compartment syndrome in both shins, which I had surgery for which are which are definitely all linked like when you're thinking about somebody who's you know has hot, had shoes on their whole life this is more of like the gen pop walking in that wants it like what are some of the first couple things you do to get somebody 
aware of their feet? Like besides just, Hey, maybe spend a little bit more time barefoot. Yeah. So my wife actually, uh, calls them foot prisons. And I love that because that's what they really are is your, your shoes are, are, are definitely foot prisons. Um, so, so I love getting people out of those. There, there, are, uh, really three things that I like to do. Um, when, when you have people just getting aware of their feet, not necessarily progressing to the full ankle lock position, um, because that's, that's a, a really complex and, um, and, and takes a lot of coaching, but, I really like to do um, like heel walking type stuff or or dorsiflexion of your foot. So you start to activate your tibialis anterior. And um, that one's really important in the strengthening of the arch of your foot. And you might not realize it, but a lot of people don't necessarily activate tib anterior all the time and, and not to the degree that we want it to. Um, so I have them do heel walking or um, just just ankle, ankle dorsiflexion, active ankle dorsiflexion. Um, so that they become more aware of that muscle, um, because that's a that's a huge one in your foot and ankle. Uh, the other one is like the marble pickups or the the toe curls with the towel. Um, that one's really great for uh, for just strengthening the bottom of your feet and kind of getting independence among your toes. Right, if you're picking up marbles between certain toes, you need to be able to use those toes specifically, kind of like you you use your hands. Like there are very there are a lot of similar muscles between your feet and your hands. And you should be able to operate a lot of your different toes uh, independently, which we unfortunately can't really as a, a society now. Um, so I like the the toe curls or, or marble pickups. And then the other one that I like to do is this, and this one's probably the most most uh, widely applicable that you can you can notice as you're working out, or you can notice just as you're walking, and that's driving your big toe into the ground and driving your big toe into the ground. Like big toe is the end of your posterior chain, like like that toe flexion, um, is, is the end of your posterior chain. So as soon as you start to activate that big toe, press it into the ground. And if you do it now, you might be able to feel the tension on the bottom of your foot, some tension in your calf, um, that really starts to activate the posterior chain even more. So, so I, I ask people to be mindful of pressing their big toe into the ground when they're deadlifting, pressing their big toe into the ground when they're squatting, when they're lunging, whatever it is. Um, because that just starts to get their body primed and and ready to um, activate that posterior chain and, and ready to use their foot. So those those are my top three things that I start people out with, and then depending on how they do with that or or what type of athlete they are, we we progress from there. How one I think one kind of wrap up and then we'll we'll close things out is you do a lot of work with professional athletes um, and it's an interesting thing when, when there's a, when people use their bodies as the tool for their like livelihood, how do you work with an athlete coming back from something that sidelines them? And, you know, when you're on the table with them, like you're obviously like, it's more than just like loosening up their tissue and stuff like that. How do you work with an athlete that is coming off something like that? Um, and also, how do you do that when it's when it's just a normal person that had some accident? Like, what is the mental side of this that we talked a lot of physical stuff, but what's the mental side of it? And how do you help people through that when an injury can cause trauma um, or more so than just that they can't walk or don't have mobility in their shoulder? Yeah, totally. Uh, working with professional athletes has always been my dream. And so um, doing that has been just an absolute blast. Uh, I've been I've been traveling around the country this this NFL season, um, working with different players on different teams. I have like, uh, I believe, 16 different NFL players on five or six different teams um, now that, that I'll, I'll travel to or, or work with the Bears guys. Um and then a handful of guys in the NBA and, and one uh, MLB guy. So working with the professional athletes has been just an absolute blast because they are they are the ones that care the most about their body because they need their body for their livelihood. If you if you can help them back from injury and they can stay healthy for one extra season, that's millions of dollars that they are able to make um, just because you were able to help them. Right. So so that's that's a really fun um, population to work with because they care a lot. Um, and so when, when I get them on the table, I have to think 
what is their timeline? Is someone is someone on the injured reserve to where we have three weeks, or is someone just kind of banged up and they're they, they know they're going to play, but we need to be aggressive in their treatment so that they're playing optimally on Sunday. So it, it kind of uh, varies. You have to see is is this a hamstring pull uh, or, or a knee injury um, that we're going to be out multiple weeks, so we can we can be. Uh, pretty diligent and intensive and um, and kind of take this in phases? Or is this someone that's definitely going to play on Sunday and we need them to be as ready as possible? So, um, so, so when they have to be ready on Sunday, I'm much more aggressive and I'm much more likely to, uh, to, to work on multiple different body parts um, up and down the chain in this, in a single treatment. Whereas if someone has multiple weeks on IR that's where I'm taking, I'm taking it uh, an hour and working just on one body part. If you had a, a hamstring pull, I'm taking an hour and working just on your hamstring and calf. And then we'll do movement patterns later uh, uh, in another hour, um, like later in the day. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I like to do it. I, I keep in mind that their, their bodies are millions of dollars of investments from themselves, right? They've, they've invested millions of dollars into their bodies. And so you have to be just, uh, um, on your game and, and, prepared going into it, um, done your research, make sure that, that every time you touch them, you are 100% confident in what you're doing. Um, and, and and exude that to them with your, with your normal everyday person, they're a lot more. So you don't have, uh, you don't have the time to do, to do like an hour of research just before you go in and treat one person, right? You've all, you've already done that, but, but, uh, like when, when I'm treating just a normal person, I'm getting, I'm getting all these different um, types of injuries that come in on a daily basis. And so I have to be ready to bounce from one thing to another, to another, to another. So it takes a different type of sharpness, right? I have to be able to think um, and, and be able to think about a shoulder and then a low back and then an ankle and then a hip, right? And, and you have to be able to piece all these different things together. So it's a much different mindset. Um, and again, still super fun to treat and, and love when people want to take their health into their own hands. Uh, the the big thing that links both of them, and this is one of the pillars of my company, um, is the mindset. So when I when I built my company um, and when I started out, I have I had these verses that I really wanted to uh, to to show and and for people to understand every time they walked into my treatment room, and even if they weren't, um, even if they didn't read the Bible, or even if they didn't, I didn't explicitly like tell them what, uh, what the verses were. I wanted them to feel like what, what my, my pillars were every time they, they came into, uh, came into the treatment room. And so the first one is, uh, John five. And, um, there's this, this guy that's, uh, he experiences a healing at the pool. And basically the, 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 the moral of the story or the, the too lazy didn't read story is, uh, is this guy had a bunch of doubts and Jesus helped him overcome these doubts. And so every time someone comes into the clinic, I want them to be able to overcome the doubts that they have. And I want my, uh, the words that I use and I want the verbs that I use to be those of overcoming and, and helping these people understand that, that they will be able to overcome whatever they're dealing with right now. And I'm going to help them to the best of my ability. So all my, all my words are geared towards that. Um, the other two, the other two verses are both in Proverbs, and there uh, one is "Good news brings health to the bones," and the other is "A cheerful heart is good medicine." And when when I talk to people, I want them to have some sort of good news, right? There might be a ton. I might have to say, "Hey, you can't do something for three weeks," and that stinks. But I want to have some sort of good news. So every time they leave the clinic, every time they they finish talking to me, they understand that there's some sort of good news. And, and, and that actually helps them heal because they're, they're excited to continue to work and they have something to look forward to. They have some sort of good news. Um, and then a cheerful heart is good medicine is like, if I'm, if I'm in a bad mood, if I, if I've had a bad day, um, didn't sleep well, and I let that affect how I I'm talking to people, they're going to react differently to the treatment than if I'm cheerful and upbeat and encouraging because they're going to respond so much better. They're going to actually get get better faster if I'm encouraged and I'm cheerful. Um, because that's the that's the 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 type of person that I want to be, right? That's the the type of environment that I want to create. So those kind of three things remain the same whether I'm working with uh, my my grandma or if I'm working with an NFL uh, All Pro athlete, right? So it's it's 
helping people understand that they're going to overcome whatever is going on and I'm going to do my best and I'm going to put everything I have into helping them overcome. And then me sharing good news with them, some sort of, of good information, some sort of, of upside, some sort of positive so that they can leave knowing that there is, there is a positive in their situation. And then being cheerful and encouraging and uplifting and upbeat. And um, my dad actually has this joke. Uh, He's, he asked me the other day, he's like, Mike, do you ever, do you ever have a bad day? And I'm like, not really. Like there's, there are bad things that happen, but like I'm, I'm excited all the time and I'm cheerful all the time because I know that as I interact with people, that could be the most exciting and encouraging piece of their day is me, me sharing some good news with them is, is, and if that's, if they're having a bad day and I can be some, some form of encouragement, excitement, uh, and, and a good part of their day, like that's exactly what I want to be. So, um, those are the, those are the three things that really remain true throughout every single treatment, regardless of what I'm treating and who I'm treating. Yeah. That couldn't lead more perfectly into the question that we close out every interview podcast with, um, our motto at live better is to have the best day ever, every single day. And exactly what you said, it's about really understanding that we can create that. So bad things may happen throughout the day, but it is our response to those things and how we can use them as learning opportunities or always finding the good and whatever it may be. And so if you could wake up tomorrow, Michael, and have the best day ever, do anything you want. There's no quarantine. There's nothing. You can do anything in the world. What does your best day ever look like? Uh, Dude, honestly, like I love my job so much. I, I want to go work. I want to go into my office. I want to go work on on my patients. I want to make them better. So if if I'm having my best day ever, I'm going into work and I'm working. Like that's 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 one of the best parts of my day is going in and, and treating people and helping people get healthy. So uh, I have the best day ever every day. Like it, uh, honestly, it feels like every day I go into work, I'm I'm having the best day ever. So uh, so that's that's what I do. If I mean, if you want anything. Um, extravagant. I, maybe I'd go camping out in the, the Rockies, but I, I love <laughs> you know, like if you're doing it. That that's exactly it, right? Um, this has been awesome. I think there's been so much you know deep education, and I really like how you rounded things out with you know understanding that this healing process is a journey. Um, one of the things that that I like that you said was how like if you are radiating good energy, people will heal faster. And there's just that there's so much truth in that in regards to everything that we do. If you walk into a room and you're positive and upbeat and everybody in the room is, you know, like super off put and you just keep that energy, like people will respond to that and, and it will brighten their day. And I think there's just so much value in that, um, you know, and you have to thread the line of that and the technical skill. Um, and so I think that's cool that that you're you're practicing and doing both of those and just continue to educate and improve and learn and treat uh where can where can people find out about you and whether it's people that are local in Chicago or people that um, aren't and want to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, so uh, I was just informed that my Instagram handle is too long, um, but Instagram's the best. <laughs> Instagram's the best place to reach me. Uh, it's Doctor Michael Tal Risher, and there's periods separating uh, all the names. So it's Doctor Dot Michael Dot Tal T A L dot Risher. Usually if you, you just type in my name, um, I, I should show up. Hopefully there, there aren't a few, there aren't a lot of, uh, Michael Rishers out there. Um, generally, so that's the best spot, or you can, uh, send me an email at rehab lab, Chicago, uh, at gmail.com. And, uh, those are the two spots that are best to reach me. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good with the Instagram DMS and, uh, I'm pretty good with the, the emails as well. So, uh, I, I like to get back to everyone that, that has questions for me. Awesome. Dr. Mike, thanks so much for taking your time and uh, embarking and some knowledge on us. And I think people are going to get a lot out of this. So thanks so much. And we wish you the best day ever. Absolutely. Thanks, guys.